My name is Bob, an alcoholic. I don't know why I say those things. Uh, only through the grace of a God that I was afraid to believe in that I've accessed through the 12-step process of Alcoholics Anonymous, good sponsorship, and a persistent and consistent effort in the primary purpose of helping other alcoholics. And consequently, I haven't had a drink or any mind or emotion-altering substance since October 31st, 1978. And that's amazing. And probably more, to me, more important than the period of abstinence has been the period of freedom. Abstinence without freedom for some of us drives us so insane that even if we don't go back to drinking, some of us take our own lives. Um, because I must be free. I drank alcohol to get free, and I found the similar freedom in Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I'm delighted to be here. It's a, I, I felt a little awkward. I, I'm not a doctor, but I tried to represent one in my neighborhood growing up to all the girls that lived there, but that's, <laughs> that may be as part of my story in another fellowship one day. I don't know. I, I it hasn't happened yet. Uh, I'm, I'm, it's a privilege to participate in Alcoholics Anonymous. I want to welcome anybody that's new. Uh, I'm really glad you're here, especially the guy that got the book. Uh, this is different. Alcoholics Anonymous is not like anything you've ever been to, and you've probably been to a lot of things. This is different. This is the only place I know of on the planet where you'll get a standing ovation for have recently burnt your life to the ground. And, I mean... <laughs> I mean, you won't, you won't get that anywhere else. Uh, it's the only place I know of where you, where you come in a big shot and you work your way up to servant if you're lucky. Uh, a lot of what happens here in recovery doesn't make sense. Everything's backwards here. What, what could easily be considered assets in normal living, when it comes to the disease of alcoholism, can be fatal liabilities. What could easily be considered liabilities in normal living when it comes to alcoholism can be assets. If you're uh, very, if you have a family that would never, never turn their back on you, and no matter how bad you get, they're going to be there for you. In normal society, that would be considered a good thing, a wonderful thing. And, and when it comes to alcoholism, sometimes that's a brutal thing. I, I, I eventually got sober because I came from a family that loved me and the pain was so great that eventually they could, for their own survival, had to have nothing to do with me. And it probably saved my life. Uh, in normal living, if you have a lot of money or if you have a business or a career that's very protected and defended and there's no chance that you're ever going to lose your cash flow, that would be considered an asset. In Alcoholics Anonymous, it's a liability. I've known men that have blown their brains out in $5 million homes. In normal living, uh, if you're very intelligent in a quick study, it would be considered an asset when it comes to alcoholism. That's a, the smarter you are, the, the tougher time you're going to have here. Our, our, um, the real bright folks have one arm's bigger than the other from raising it in meetings continually for years. Uh, 
I know. I was one of those guys. I was one of those guys. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm an intellectual, which means that I live up in my head and I'm not very connected to anything that's real. Um, I live up here in the control center, where if I, I, under the illusion that knowledge is power. If I have enough knowledge, I will surely have the power to what? As our book says, uh, to wrest happiness and satisfaction out of this world by my own management. That I will be able to control, and if not control and enjoy my drinking, at least control and enjoy my abstinence. And uh, I have no power. Lack of power is my dilemma. I, uh, I don't know why I got alcoholism. You know, there used to be uh, some thinking. Uh, I, I worked in the treatment field uh, many, many years ago uh, before I got sober. Actually, I was a, I was a great uh, substance abuse counselor right up into the day I lost the job for being drunk on the job. But I was very good up to that day. Uh, and there was a thinking and a, and a sentiment back in those days that, that, that it must be connected to, it must have been nurture. That it had to have been connected. You, you must have, somebody must have done something to you or, or raised you wrong. Or, uh, and I uh, got to tell you that if that was the case, I shouldn't have alcoholism. I came from a one, wonderful family. I came from a family where there was a lot of love. Uh, they were always there for me. They sacrificed. They brought principles and ethic to the table, not only by their words, but by their example. Uh, I had a great childhood. But oddly enough, there was something wrong with me back then. It's odd that if you were to talk to my sister who is not an alcoholic, who doesn't have the spiritual malady of alcoholism, and you were to ask her about our childhood, she would tell you at great lengths about the love in our household, how she could feel it. I could see it, and I understood it was there intellectually, but I could not feel it. As if I was that disassociated and internally focused and wrapped up in myself, even as a kid. I've always thought, I've always found my thoughts more interesting than reality. Uh, I just always have. I, uh, I just, I've always, I never could put this into words because it would sound like such a blasphemous statement. But I think on some level I've always thought that it was a shame that I wasn't God. I, I, Because I would do a lot better job. And let me tell you something. If I was God, some of you would be in a lot of trouble, I'm telling you. <laughs> uh, so as, as far back as I can remember, before I ever picked up a drink, there, there was just something vague and almost undiscernibly wrong with me. I can tell you that as, as, I, as I started to go into this being socialized in grade school that, and throughout my growing up, I never felt connected to people the way I observed them being connected to each other. It was almost as if, looking back in hindsight, as if there was some invisible yet impenetrable barrier between me and life itself. I used to get feelings walking into dances and parties and classrooms and 
gatherings and sporting events where it would be all of you and then there's me. As if I existed separate and apart from. And I, I, I'm what Dr. Silkworth talks about in the doctor's opinion. It says, uh, to us, our alcoholic life seems the only normal one. So I, I just try to adjust to not feeling like other people look. I just try to adjust to the awkwardness that seems to be inside of me. And so what happens is I become a pretend guy. I become the guy who pretends he fits. I become the guy who pretends he's not afraid and I'm afraid a lot. I pretend like I, there's nothing wrong with me and, and I don't know what it is, but man, there's something wrong with me. I'm an alcoholic without alcohol. And an alcoholic without alcohol is left with the ick. I must have been like a freeze-dried alcoholic waiting for alcohol before I ever picked up a drink. I mean, I'm... I'm but the only way... There's, I suppose there's a lot of neurotic misfits like me, but the discerning factor is what happened to me when I was almost 13 years old. An event happened in my life that would, unbeknownst to me, change the whole course of it. And I was with a bunch of older kids, and we, uh, we had some bottles of whiskey. And I didn't know anything about it. I just wanted to fit. I just wanted to belong. So as they're passing around this quart bottle of Seagram 7, I can still remember the label. Uh, by the time it gets to me, I'm in. I'm, I'm going to take a big hit because the kid that took a big hit earlier in the circle got a lot of praise from the other kids. So by the time it gets to me, I'm in. I'm just glad to this day it wasn't cat urine because I'm in. I'm telling you. <laughs> I'm in. And I took a big hit off that bottle of Seagram 7, and my, they, they don't tell you about the burning. They don't tell you that part. But my God, when that went away, I started to feel so good and so connected that if I would have been a religiously minded person, I think it would have felt spiritual. That the way I would be without that effect from that moment on would never, ever, ever be enough again for me. And I just seemed to, from that moment on, not even realizing, just seemed to live for opportunities to get lit up. And in, in the early days of my drinking, as I assume if you're a chronic alcoholic like I am, in the early days is the days when the hook is set. The days when there's a magic. You talk, talk about your theme for next year, the magic of recovery. I'm telling you, the early days of drinking, there was a magic about drinking. I mean, a guy like me who, who doesn't fit anywhere, sober, who can't talk to girls, I can't dance, I can't get up in the stage, I can't play in a band, I can't sing in front, I can't do any of that stuff. You get me half lit up and whatever it was that was blocking me from life itself seems to dissolve away. Bill Wilson in his story said something the first time I read it, it just resonated in me. He said, I was a part of life at last. And here, here's a guy, I'm a mope, I, I, I can't do anything really. That's my big secret is on the natch as is, I'm, I'm kind of nothing. And I get lit up and I'm kind of something. And it's amazing. I, I remember, I, God, I, Junior high school, I, I, there was a girl at school that I had this crush on, and it was, it was so, 
I'm an obsessive thinker. Most internally focused people are obsessive. We just we stare at our own stuff, you know, until it makes us crazy. And I, I'm one of those kind of guys. And 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 this girl, I not, I can't even not even not only can I talk to her, I can't even look at her when she's in the classroom. I can't even look that way. I just she drives me crazy. And I'm in my mind. I'm, I already know what college our kids are going to, and all. I mean, I'm just, whew, I'm out there. And and I go to this dance, and a guy showed me some dance steps. And I go to this dance, kind of on this obsessive mission to ask her to dance. And we're gonna, you know, I have all the fantasies of falling in. Oh, it's gonna be amazing. And and I get to this dance, and I am so locked up inside of me, I can't even. I just ah. Oh, God, I can't do it. I can't do it. And I finally, I just, in, in, in total despair and collapse, I went out into the parking lot and ran into some buddies that had some 151 rum. Oh, yeah. Oh, there's, there's some, anybody, are there any 151 rum drinkers here? Can I say, anybody? Let me tell you something, if you're new and maybe in denial, there is no social drinking of 151 rum. There's no social drinking of Everclear either. So let's just get that straight right now. Well, I, I get running these guys, and man, after a couple of rum and cokes, I kind of floated back into that dance under the power of 151 rum. I just kind of, with a suave fair, I wasn't even ever capable, just kind of floated right up to her with a confidence that was beyond me. And just started talking to her. And I don't know where the words are coming from, but they're magnificent. I, I was like, it was like I was channeling someone or something. I, I'm having this out-of-body experience as I'm listening to myself say these things to this girl. And I'm thinking inside me, I'm thinking, oh my God, this is going to work. This is amazing. And what happens is I, I, it works. And then I sober up and I'm back to being me again. And I never liked that much. I like that better. I always like that better. Which is crazy as the disease progressed and the trouble I start getting into and the shame I start incurring and the broken hearts and, and all the damage I'm doing to the people I love and, and to myself. And my big secret is that I, is what Silkworth talks about. He says, to us, our alcoholic life seems the only normal one. See, I've always been felt more normal when I'm about half lit up than I ever felt on the natch. And I don't know what's wrong with me. But I start getting in trouble. I, by the time I'm, I'm almost 16 years old, and, and uh, I'm standing before a juvenile court judge for the third time, same judge, and I am in a lot of trouble. And I come from an upper-middle-class, suburban, nice good home. My parents are very, pre have a lot of prestige in the community, very well respected. And they're in that courtroom because the, the juvenile court authorities are talking about locking me up somewhere with a terrible reputation for abuse and kids. And my, my mother and father are in there going to bat for me, trying to keep me from going to be locked up at that horrible place. And, and if you'd asked me why I was in that courtroom, I wouldn't have said alcoholism. You could have put me on a lie detector and said, Bob, is there any way in the world you're alcoholic? And I would have said, absolutely not. And it would have said I was telling the truth. I would have, might have told you I was there because of 
snitches. I might have told you I was there because of a society that tried to squash real free thinkers. I might have told you I was there because of a society that wouldn't let you drink and how they drink in other countries at this age. Um, But I wouldn't have said alcoholism. Isn't it odd that I could be in the grip of something that's starting to burn my life up and I don't even know it? I'm in that courtroom because of an allergic reaction to alcohol that I don't even know I got because alcoholism uses my own mind against me. And that is hideous because I don't know about you guys, but when I'm afraid or lonely or frustrated or resentful, what's the first thing I do is think. I'm a thinker. I am, I am turning into the source of my demise for, for information and counsel. I'd be better off getting Charles Manson as a spiritual advocate than, than listening to my head, for God's sakes, with my track record. I mean, jeez. And yet, my thoughts are, I always, I'm smarter. My, I always respect my thoughts. I don't respect anybody else's. Even at a young age, the ego of the alcoholic was blooming and blooming. And I, I, I'm, I'm, I got sent to this place. I'm at this new, new place. I, um, it was a lot better and had a chance for a good education, uh, better than the place they, wa- they talked about it and sending me. And I'm at the new, go- new place, but I, 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 I've been sober now for a number of weeks, months, actually probably a couple months now. And I gotta tell you, I don't, dis- abstinence feels like I'm doing time and I'm a little overdue to get high. And I get to the school and I, uh, I target some of the guys that look like they had something going on. You know, if you're like me and your big secret is you ain't, you're nothing, you gotta look for the guys that are something and hang out with them and hope that some of their something's gonna rub off on some of my nothing. Right? And that's what I, I target these guys and I'm talking to one of the guys, one of the leaders, and I'm telling him my story, et cetera, and sort of enhancing it. I'm giving him the, story of Bob on steroids, story of Bob, and, and uh, he's listening to me, and he finally says to me, oh, so you like to party, do you? <sighs> yeah, yes, I do. I, I thought maybe he's going to pull out a bottle of rum or something, I, and instead of that, he says to me, he says, well, you drink that alcohol. That alcohol make you crazy. Can't control that. He says, that's no wonder you're in a lot of trouble. He says, what if I told you? I could give you something to make you feel as good as that alcohol, and they won't smell on your breath. You won't slur your words. You won't stagger. Nobody even know you're high, and you keep a whole week's supply in a little baggie about this big. What would you say to that? I don't even know what he's talking about, but it's like, well, sign me up. <laughs> and he introduced me to drugs. I've got to tell you something. I have the disease of alcoholism. Alcoholics should not do drugs. It's bad. <laughs> oh, my God, it's bad. I tr- I'm trying to reproduce the effect of a pint of 151 rum, so everything I pick up, I do it with an obsess. I, I do drugs alcoholically. <laughs> I, and I'm like a crazy person. I, in no time, I don't do any amphetamines, but I don't just do them like people, I, I don't do them like drug addicts do them. I do them like crazy people do them. I, there's guys, old heads that have been doing this stuff for years that are saying things to me like, hey kid, you better cool it. In, in no time at all, I think I turned myself, I must have turned myself into some sort of paranoid schizophrenic or something. I became the guy, if you left me alone in your car and you went in to get cigarettes, by the time you come back out, I'm trying to 
tear your dashboard apart looking for microphones from the police, right? Because I'm nuts, man. I'm insane. And the guy comes along and he says, try some of this. And I don't even know what it is, but man, when the throwing up stopped, all that, my head just went, oh, introduced me to heroin. But I'm a real alcoholic. Alcoholics should not do drugs. And I took that to the wall and and for a number of years, I went that route, as a lot of us do, to come full circle back to alcohol. And there's, there's no way for me to prove this, but I've always speculated that my soiree into other chemicals uh, was a better, was another illusion of a way to control and enjoy this thing. I suspect that, that there, that I may have very well done this for the re same reason Dr. Bob, according to his story, took High-powered sedatives every day of his life for 17 years, and he did not drink every day of his life. He drank periodically. But every time Bob drank, every time, it was exactly like me. Every time he picked up a drink, he couldn't stop. As a matter of fact, from what a friend of mine told me, that the day that Bill Wilson had called from the Mayflower Hotel to see if he could see Bob, he couldn't see Bob that day because... He was taking a nap under the dining room table. You know, you've got to love a guy like that. I mean, I'm a napper, right? I'm a guy. I was in a band one time. The poor, I still never found the band leader to make my amends. I don't, can't, don't know her last name, but oh, if she's in here, I'm sorry. Uh, oh, it was horrible. They put me in a band where we'd play these, these places, clubs and stuff. And if you were in the band, you got to drink for free. Oh, you can't do that to me. I'm the guy during the second set that's fallen into the drum set. You know, I'm the guy taking a nap in a booth somewhere. Because when I start, it, every drink gains momentum in me. I, I, am the, I am the type of guy that Silkworth talks about with a physical allergy to alcohol that manifests itself in a phenomenon of craving. And that has been strong within me. It has always been present. I, I've never had periods where I could drink socially and then it would kick in. It was always immediate with me. Uh, for me to pick up a drink of alcohol, it's, it's like having sex with a gorilla. You ain't done till the gorilla's done. <laughs> you can tell yourself all night long, me and that gorilla are going to have a dance. No, you're not. No, it's going to, I'm telling you, it ain't like that. Uh, but yet the delusion is, is that I can have a dance. We're going to just dance. We're just going to dance. And that gorilla gets that look in his eyes. And I didn't know that I had that alert. I didn't know I had that allergy. Because it, it uses my own mind against me. There's a test in the big book. It says if you don't think you're alcoholic, maybe you think your problem's really just drugs. Maybe you think your problems is, is your, it's your emotions. You get those straightened out, you probably will drink sensibly. Maybe you have a lot of other ideas. There's a test in the book. I don't recommend it personally. I think our society puts a high ante on this test. But the test is go, it's on, it's in the beginning of chapter three. It says go over to the nearest bar, try some drink, try, try some controlled drinking. Try to drink and then stop abruptly. Well, when you think about it objectively, if I'm going to try that test, I'm going to go into this bar. I'm going to see if those people in AA are full of crap or not. Phenomenal and craving. I don't know. Phenomenal and craving. Ah, I don't have that. 
All right, I'm going to take the test. I'm going to have two drinks and that's it. Now I got to shut her down. Now you can't smoke nothing, take nothing, no pills, nothing, two drinks, that's it. Well, about halfway through that second drink, it become very apparent to me that this is a bad test day. <laughs> My God, I didn't know that game was going to be on television. Joe just walked in. Joe's always got something amazing to smoke. I gotta have a drink with Joe. Some girl would be there and I'd think, oh my God, that could, could be her. Could be her. Gotta have a drink with her. Tomorrow would be a better test day. And I don't know that as I ingest alcohol and the feeling starts to hit me, that I break out in an irresistible yearning to get higher. I've always had that. I've always had that. And most, in almost all those years, I never knew it because it uses my own might. And I think that one more seems like it's my idea. I, I think it's, it seems appropriate. I've got a mind that, that will justify always the next drink. I've never been ordering a drink that I thought was a bad idea. No, I've, I've been ordering a drink and thinking five down the road from here is going to be a bad idea. But this next one is really okay. And that's how alcohol, that's one of the ways that alcoholism punks a guy like me out. And then the last, the last many years, when the fun days were gone, when it had turned on me, and there is no more party, there is no more magic, and I drink and I feel sorry for myself, and I drink and I cry. And I drink and I don't even bathe anymore because I don't care. Because once all the fun ran out of the party, I, my whole life just sort of cooked down to oblivion. Just blot and bob out. And isn't it odd that my drinking could become so pathetic? I'm the guy that at 3 o'clock in the morning, I'm on the phone calling grade school friends and stuff. Because the loneliness is just on me. I'm calling ex-girlfriends at 4 a.m. crying into the phone. We should have got married. Oh, jeez. Oh, God, do I make a good impression. Oh. I call my, one time, this is a horrible memory. Thank God, through the ninth, eighth and ninth step and good sponsorship, I got to make things right and really get, became close to my family because I hurt them much. I remember calling them at 4 o'clock in the morning and waking them up and crying into the phone that, you must have raised me wrong. I'm so screwed up. And Oh, God. I remember the loneliness. The kind of loneliness that I'd, even if I had a, or even if I had somebody in a hostage in some sort of sick relationship, even if I was in a public place drinking with people who I knew intellectually, liked me, accepted me, there was something wrong with me. And I don't even fit anywhere drunk anymore. And how did that happen? How, how did that happen when at one time it was so magical? It's called alcoholism. It's a progressive illness. The, the, they, they say that the, in the book that over any considerable period, any, it doesn't say any considerable period of drinking, over any considerable period, it gets worse, never better. I, I've been sober long enough to have watched men and women who I have 12-stepped, watch them come into Alcoholics Anonymous, 
do very well for 10 years in AA and then start to back away of their own involvement in this fellowship and then drink at like 15, 20 years sobriety. And I knew exactly where they were at when they came in. Let me tell you something. They do not pick up where they left off. It's horrible. If they picked up where they had, where they left off, then they could have done the same stuff that got them the 15 years and it would have worked. But now the disease has progressed and it's up the ante. And what they did to get the 15 years before is no longer enough. And what progresses? The physical? Yeah, I mean, there's an argument for that. Here's what I think is the worst and most hideous part of the progression of the disease is the ego. I work with a lot of guys. I, I, go to a, I go to a detox in Las Vegas called West Care. I, I take a meeting in there twice a week. I've been doing that for since they opened uh, 27 years, 25 years. I don't even know what, how long. But I've been taking two meetings a week like that into somewhere in my whole sobriety. And, and I live in a city where, where we, if, if you're from anywhere in the United States and you drink again with 20, 30 years, we had a guy in there 45 years in our detox, and he drank again. Vegas calls you like the sirens. You, you could have $5 million saved up in your retirement, and Vegas goes, hey, Bob, we're going to jumpstart the party. Come to Vegas. And it doesn't matter, you got five, ten million dollars, Vegas will take it away from you. Quick. We call Las Vegas the hitting bottom capital of the world. <laughs> I love living there. It is for, if you're, if you understand the primary purpose, if you understand the dynamic of being free from the bondage of self through helping other drunks, Vegas is the richest city in the world. <laughs> It's an limitless gold mine for freedom for guys like me. And it's always the, it's the ego. I, we had this one guy, I've worked with so many of these guys, and they become the I know guys because they've got a tremendous head full of intellectual and academic knowledge about alcoholism, but they have nothing in here. You know what it says about step one? We had to fully concede to our innermost self. They don't got that. They got it up here. So they become the I know guys. You try to talk to them. Try to help them. They ask you to sponsor them. I say, well, I want you to do this, blah, blah, blah. And they go, yeah, I know. Uh-huh. I know. Uh-huh. And I want you to do They go, yeah, I know. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I know. I think what they're really saying is, uh, shut up. Shut up. Shut up. <laughs> or maybe they, maybe they do know up here, but it doesn't mean anything. That's why recovery from alcoholism is not an academic proposition. It's experiential. It must happen in that place that is beyond the cognizant, my innermost self. It must happen in here. And that's why there's sometimes a tremendous backwash in my, in, in my experience in recovery. You take all these actions, and you, I think I'm on step 90. And I'm just all of a sudden really starting to get three because it's almost like a backwash that's occurring as a result of my actions. But my ego was killing me. And, and you know, my, my mother uh, was a therapist uh, for mental health and mental retardation. It was in the mental health section in Pennsylvania. And my, my father was uh, 
very politically connected. He was the first administrator for the uh, and putting put together the Department of Environmental Resources for the state of Pennsylvania. Very politically connected, and they got me when I and before they stopped trying to help me because I they, I broke their hearts so often they couldn't take it anymore. They used their influence to get me into some of the best therapists on the planet. I mean, I was in therapy with one guy. You had to be a freaking movie star to go up and see Ellis and get personal attention from him. But my dad and mom got me in there to take the train up to New York. I was in I, a lot of therapy for a long time with a guy named Dr. Silverman who, who, was, who studied with Alan Watts and, under, and Fritz Perls. And this guy was brilliant. But I don't have a mental illness. Now, it looks like a mental illness. But it's a spiritual malady. And the great, the great hope and, and, and reality of Alcoholics Anonymous in my life is it says in the book, when the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. When the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. You know, if that's true, some of you could be out of a job. I mean, you, you know what I'm saying? I mean, uh, if, this, if we straighten out spiritually, the mental and the physical. See, I got an alcohol, I got a disease that I could, go, I could sit down, I could be in therapy with a board of the best psychiatrists on the planet, and they will, I will create neurosis faster than they can dissemble it. I mean, I, <laughs> right? I just, I'm that way. I'm that way. You know, and for years, I, I spent years in therapy. I spent years uh, on various medications. I had several diagnoses. Uh, and I've read the, the, I've read the stuff on why they, how they diagnose stuff. And I understand why they diagnosed me. One psychiatrist is clinically depressed. I had all the symptomology of that. I understand why I was diagnosed with free-floating anxiety and panic disorder. I understand. But the truth is, is what I was really had was a spiritual depression. It was the depression of a guy who is just so obsessively and narcissistically self-involved. A guy that when I stop drinking, I just get my emotions and my past and all the remorse and guilt and shame and my future and all the worry and apprehension. I just get it all right on me. Like that creature in that movie, Alien, that attaches itself to your face. <laughs> How you doing, Bob? <laughs> oh, I'm hanging in there. <laughs> I remember those days, I'd, I'd have to, if somebody asked me a question, I couldn't just answer it. I had to sigh first. It was like, oh, hanging in there. Because it, it, you know what it felt? It felt like somebody had stepped on the oxygen hose to my soul. And I didn't understand that I was smothering myself with myself. And you know how I know that? Absolutely. And I, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a psychiatrist. But, but check this out. The treatment, and I went for it with the medications and the, and the therapy that was implied in my life that I, I pursued in those days really didn't do very much to me. It wasn't until I got into Alcoholics Anonymous and was beaten enough emotionally to surrender to a, a, a dictator kind of sponsor who started pushing me into the actions that Bill Wilson talks about in his story when he talks about 
in his first few years of sobriety sinking into the deep depression and being so overcome with self-pity that he was in danger of drinking again. And what does he say? He says, I would go down to my old hospital and I would spend a couple hours with a guy who was coming apart at the seams. And he says, I would be miraculously uplifted. And that's exactly what happened to me in 1978. After a failed suicide attempt, uh, and, and I, I'm not a suicidal guy by nature, but I'll tell you, alcoholism can take someone who has no suicidal tendencies and back you into a corner and put you in a trap that you can't spring. And how that happens is drinking has become pathetic and horrible and lonely and depressing. And sobriety feels like you're doing time and it ain't much better. Now, some of you think, well, my God, you're going to try to kill yourself? Why don't you go to, why don't you go to Bob? Go to that AA. Work those stairs. Do that. <laughs> well, I'm not alone here. I don't, I've talked to, I bet you, thousands of alcoholics over the years. I'll tell you something, I have never met an alcoholic yet who comes to Alcoholics Anonymous in the midst of hopelessness of this disease, where you hate yourself and you're depressed and you de it's horrible. I have never met anyone in that condition that looked at the 12 steps and went, oh yeah, that would work, yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, and I get to write an inventory, do I? Oh, I'm so excited. Pay those idiots back. Oh, I can't wait. This is fun. This is good. And then devote my the rest of my life to helping people I don't even like. Oh, I can't wait. This is good. Good stuff. But a self-centered, self-directed, self-involved, self-absorbed, self-focused, self-obsessed guy like me. None of that looks good. Matter of fact, I, I've talked to so many people over the years. It's uncanny how the ego will create a resistance and a defense against anything that will get me better. I bet you there's people in this room that have had the experiences that I've had, many of them, where you know you've got to write a fourth step, you're, you're, you're really messed up here and you're afraid you're going to drink again, and yet the resistance that wells up inside me instead of picking up that 500-pound pen or when you know you want to, you need to call your sponsor, you're going nuts here. You're going nuts. The resistance to let anybody know that there's something wrong with you. I'll tell you, I, I think I got the kind of ego that it doesn't, it doesn't care if it kills me. As long as after I'm dead, everybody realizes Bob was right. <laughs> I ended up, I'll tell you a little side story, I, I'm, I end up in the emergency room a lot, not, not for anything too dramatic, but some, you know, and I end up in this emergency room, and I'm drunk, 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 so I've been in there a while, so now I'm kind of sobering up, and they've, they stitched me up, and I had a little minor thing to be stitched up, and they had to x-ray me just to make sure, and I had to wait for the results of the x-ray, so I'm sitting in this waiting room, and now I'm kind of sobered up a bunch, and there's a, a rack of like a, pamphlets, medical pamphlets, you know, diabetes and heart, all this stuff. And I, I started paging through one of them, and it was on cancer. And it said one of, something about a, one of the symptoms was continued unexplained bleeding. And I remember reading that and thinking to myself, 
oh my God, I'm, I throw up blood sometimes. I got, ooh, I got, sometimes I get blood coming out both ends. And I'm thinking, oh my God, I, I have cancer. Oh my God, oh no, wait a minute, oh. It's, it's metastasized into my brain. That explains volumes of my life. No, I, no wonder I go through these ups and downs. No wonder I, I go flip out and be rageful at people. No wonder I, no wonder I do these weird things and can't remember them. Oh my God. Everybody thought I was a bum. I have a brain tumor. I didn't know. I didn't know. And I had this fantasy for a long time that my, they were going to take me out of the park and probably take me to a, some, cancer ward somewhere or something and they'd notify my family who thought I was a bum. They're going to come running to the hospital properly ashamed of themselves. Oh my God, Bob, we didn't know you had cancer. Oh my God, they, they, my, my ex-girlfriends. Oh, they're going to realize how wrong they'd been. Oh, and they're going to come flocking to the hospital to beg my forgiveness. And if they're properly ashamed of themselves, I may forgive them. And I ended up in this treatment center, and I, I'm telling this doc, doc, I think I have a brain tumor. And I lied to him. He says, did you ever check that? I said, oh, yeah, I got one. And so they gave me a complete physical, and he comes back to me. He's kind of, dis- kind of aggravated. He says, you don't have a brain tumor. You have a little bit of an ulcer and a hemorrhoid. I'm... This, is, this is the ego. I wanted a second opinion. Like, right, my ego would rather have me dead from a terminal illness, but everybody knows how right I was and how wrong they were, than to be well. Uh, let me tell you something. If you identify with any of that on any level, you do not have a high mental health quotient. <laughs> but that's all my ego cares about. And it was one of the reasons I couldn't get better. I fit, there, were, there was a, a wonderful psychiatrist who studied us for, for decades. He's, he's, He's an old man now, and he's, he's probably 50 years he's been working with us. and He's not an alcoholic. And he, he said one time that the reason that we don't get any better, even though some of us will have long periods of abstinence, is that our egos are so out of line that we have an inability to listen to anyone in order to hear anything new. I can only listen to see how I'm already right. And if... I'm like that, and because I'm like that, I'm a closed system. I fit the old adage, you can always tell an alcoholic, you just can't tell them much. (laughs) So what happens is I sit in meetings in treatment center after treatment center, and I just pick you apart. You know, I'm the guy who sits there and just like smugly, just sitting there. I I have no self-esteem. I hate myself. And yet I feel superior to everybody. It's not so much, you know, I heard a guy say that we're egomaniacs with an inferiority complex. It's not so much I'm a piece of whale crap. I'm a very special piece of whale crap. <laughs> and I would sit there and just people would share their experience. And I'd just be picking them apart. I'd be thinking, sitting there going, is that a toupee? <laughs> She's interesting. Are, are those real? <laughs> uh, you know, what, what's he, a sunbeam for Jesus? I mean, what's this about? Oh my God, this person's so full of himself. And nothing gets in. And if nothing gets in, nothing changes. And if nothing changes, nothing changes. And that's why some of us uh, feel stuck. Alcoholism, kind of untreated alcoholism, sober, feels like you're stuck. 
And I know what it feels like to be sober and feel stuck. And so in 1978, I came to in the park, and and during that physical I had, this the doctor had given me what should have been good news. He said I was young enough, I was in my 20s, and that uh, I probably, this if I keep going on like I'm, I'm going on, it's going to kill me, that it probably will take five years because I was a young guy and bounced back physically. He said I might have five years. And I came to in the park one day, and I got the tremors bad. I, they're, they're embarrassing. If you've, ever, if you've ever had the shakes real bad in the morning and you see somebody, it's terrible when somebody sees you with the tremors. And I'm dirty and I don't bathe anymore and I don't eat. I'm not against eating. I'm just not eating up my drinking money. And I remember thinking, five more years of this. Oh my God. I can't do five more days of this. And I made up my mind, I'm just going to make this stop. And I went to a bridge on, in the north side of Pittsburgh. I, I walked from the park on the north side where I was, I'd been thrown out of a treatment center and I was staying there. And I walked to this bridge with the full intention of killing myself. And I am not afraid to die. I am really looking forward to it. And what happened to me on that bridge is I got this fear that saved my life. And what the fear was, not of dying, I mean, I'm not afraid to die. Um, people have been, for years have been telling me this stuff's eventually going to kill me. The problem is drinking yourself to death takes a long time. It's like being kicked to death by rabbits. It just goes on <laughs> and on. And by the time you're actually dead, you've been wanting to be dead for a long time. By the time it kills you, everyone you've ever loved hates you. As, as my mother, I remember my God, when I was a year sober, I, I made first pass at making amends to my parents in person. And my mother broke down with tears in her eyes because she loved me. And because she, she had to tell me the truth. And the truth is, for some time, she'd just been wishing I would be dead. I'd die. Just make it stop. No, I'm on that bridge and I break down and I can't kill myself because I get afraid all of a sudden that I'm going to screw this suicide up like I've screwed everything else up in my life and I'm not going to die. I'll probably end up paralyzed from the neck down in some charity ward for 50 years sober, listening to my head tell me what a piece of crap I am as members of Alcoholics Anonymous parade their newcomers through the hospital room and I get to hear them say, well, this is what happens to you when you don't find God and work our wonderful 12 steps. And I'm paralyzed. I can't even give them the one-finger salute. You know, I'm... Now that scares me. They used to call Alcoholics Anonymous the last house on the block. Makes sense, doesn't it? There's a line in our book, one of my favorite lines. It says, we get to a point where there's nothing left. We came to believe in the hopelessness and futility of our life as we'd been living it. There's nothing left except to pick up the simple kit of spiritual tools laid at our feet. And I, uh, in 1978, I got to a place where there was nothing left. It was complete collapse of everything in me uh, that was where I, co I, I couldn't even get up again. And it was horrible. And I was in this detox, and I was sick, sick. They had me on IVs for a while. They wouldn't even let me, couldn't get out of bed for a while. And I finally... 
I stabilized me enough, and I was able to, they gave me some clothes to wear because the ones I were in were just a mess. And they got me clothes, and I went to the AA meetings in there. The Buddhists say that when the student's ready, the teachers appear. And a man who became my sponsor and several other old-timers, and these I didn't know these were the doers. I didn't know that these people that I'm meeting in these institutions are the top of the food chain in AA for spirituality. I, I thought they just didn't have a life. <laughs> I didn't know that they were people that were on fire with the primary purpose. And they didn't just talk about it, they lived it. And they, went, they were always fishing for guys like me, and every once in a while they'd catch one. And they'd get to watch the greatest thing they'd ever seen. They'd get to watch a, a dying man's life change. And they caught me. And they caught me because I had enough of me kicked out of me that for the first time in, in six years of in and out of institutions, all for six years, I could hear you. I didn't judge you. I didn't put you down. I didn't pick holes in you. I just sat there and your experience washed over me. I remember like it was yesterday sitting there and there's their share and the guy who's become my sponsor talked about his suicide attempt. And I'm sitting there and I'm with him every inch of the way. I know how he felt. I knew what he was thinking. I knew it. You can't read that in a book and, and parrot it back to somebody. You had to be there. And I'm, and I'm connecting with these guys and I'm thinking to myself, my God, I'm like these people. And I've been watching. They came in there twice a week. And I watched some, I watched the guy that's become my sponsor with some of the people he sponsored and the way they laughed and joked around and picked fun on each other. And they had big lives and successful businesses and careers and amazing things. But more importantly, they, I watched this guy one day and I'm thinking to myself, my God, he looks like he's having a better time sober than I had when alcohol was fun. And I dared to hope. And the hope was that maybe if I did everything that they did, maybe what happened to them could happen to me. And I asked this guy to be my sponsor, and I told him, I said, I'll do anything you ask me to do. And, oh, my God, you don't say that to somebody in AA. <laughs> oh, it's like they got big lists of stuff. You know, they're just waiting for some sucker to say that. And, and, they had, they want, and I'll tell you, there's nothing they wanted me to do that seemed like a good idea. And isn't it funny? Everything in AA doesn't seem like a good idea until after you do it for a while and you go, oh, I should have done that a long time ago. <laughs> That's weird, isn't it? We don't know. We don't know. We don't know. We're the last to know. Always. And I didn't know. When I was fairly new, a, a guy, Joe, cornered me after a meeting. And he, he, Joe came up to me because I'd shared something in this discussion meeting. He must have got his attention because he came right up to me after the meeting. He said, he says, kid, you need to take step three. And I looked at the wall where the 12 steps were, and I said, listen, Joe, I, I can't take step three. He said, why not? I said, well, the truth is, Joe, I don't, I don't know if there's a God or not. I, I don't have that. I don't believe in God. He says, you don't have to believe in God to take step three. Well, Joe, that's kind of what it says. We made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. I mean, Joe, I can't do that. He says, listen, kid, you don't have to believe in God to take step three. I said, really? He says, no, listen. He says, I promise you, if you'll turn your will and your life over to this chair, and he points to a chair in the Alano Club, he says, I guarantee you an instantaneous miracle. 
I thought, okay, what the hell? All right, Joe, I turn my will my life over to the chair. What's the miracle? He gets a big smile. He says, oh, the miracle will be your life's no longer in the hands of an idiot. <laughs> and I must have been somewhat surrendered because I didn't get mad. I just thought, yeah, that'd be right. Yeah. 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 Because if you'd have followed me around and have watched me, as maybe your friends, family, loved ones have watched you, it would be very easy to come to the conclusion whoever's making decisions for this person is out to destroy him. And yet it doesn't look that way up here because of this infinite capacity to rationalize and defend and explain things to myself. I can make the most deviant, crazy, self-destructive behavior make sense to me in here. I had a great guy named Dale who died uh, 28 years ago, probably come up to me one, one day, and he, he liked me, and he was kind of a gruff old-timer. Old and he's, Dale's got in my face, and he says, Listen, kid, I'm going to tell you some stuff that's going to save you a lot of pain and a lot of grief if you'll buy it. He says, Kid, I want you to know if you're explaining something, if you're justifying something, if you're rationalizing something or defending something, kid, I want you to know you're wrong. Because you never have to justify, explain, defend, or rationalize what's right. And I thought, that can't be true. <laughs> Almost 30 years later, I have not found an exception to that. It's only the ego that squirms around and does that. I, I had an experience with a new guy, with an old timer when I was new. And I was going crazy. You know how you go crazy in sobriety where you just, it seems like I'm overloading. It's like I, I just get the whole world and all this. I am very good at solving problems that haven't occurred yet. <laughs> and there's, I'm telling you, and there's more out there than you've ever expected if you just look right. I am always trying to clear up the wreckage of my future and, until it just overwhelms me, until I feel like my head's going to blow up. And I'm telling this guy this, and he said to, he said to me, you think that you're your head, don't you? You think you're your thoughts in your head. I said, yeah, it's my thought, yeah. He said, you're not your head. You're not your thoughts. I'm not? No. What you are is you're the idiot that listens to it. <laughs> oh, I'm the observer? I thought that was me. The greatest trick the ego ever has pulled is to convince me it doesn't exist. I have never been ego-driven, egocentric, judging everybody around me and playing God. We're in the middle of it, I thought to myself, you know, this is probably ego. <laughs> never. Never. It's the great shift changer. It's the great deceiver. I... Uh, I've become, I, I, over the years, I've been consumed, so interested in, in some of the old spiritual literature. And I was talking to someone, I, I sometimes wish I could read um, Hebrew or Aramaic so I could go back and read some of that in the original text. And I was talking to someone who could. And they said something to me I had never heard before, but my God, it explained volumes of my life. They said if you went back into the original language and you read Genesis 
the part of the Bible that talks about the Garden of Eden and the serpent, and you get to the part about serpent, he said, he said, if you, the, the word that they use that's been translated in English as the word serpent, if you were to literally translate it into the English, it is not the word serpent. He said what it really would be, it's the word for the noise the serpent makes. It's the hiss and the slither. You can't see it in the tall grass, but it's always there. It's always there. It's there right now. It's telling you, what the hell is that guy doing with his hand next to his head? <laughs> it's telling oh, he's really full of himself. He says, let's, let's get him to stop talking about himself. Somebody needs to talk about me. <laughs> enough, enough. It's the part that, that lives to grandize me. It's the part that judges others. It's the part that plays God. I didn't know that. I used to go to my sponsor. My God, I went through a period where I just was accumulating resentments more than I could... They would t and because my ego is returned now, I had some ego reduction when I first got sober. I had this collapse. Then the ego grew back. Oh, my God, it grows back like a bad tumor. It just won't. It never goes away. And it grew back. And the problem is I don't know that it grew back. Because now I'm taking things I've learned out of the big book. I'm taking the traditions. I'm taking things I hear in meetings and using them to make me right and aggrandize me. I remember I went through a period. I really got into the traditions. Uh, see, I think, I think knowledge is power. Knowledge is not power. Knowledge is fodder for the ego. Real spiritual growth comes from reduction, not acquisition. And I learned the traditions, and I learned them real well, so I could go to meetings and notice people that weren't practicing them. <laughs> If I found a blatant tradition break, it was like Christmas. <laughs> and I'd, I'd, I'd accumulate this stuff. Because I have a sponsor, but I only use him in emergencies. Well, there's an art form to getting help and not and looking like you don't need it. I mean, that's really a... I was the kind of guy when my ego returned, I would only go to my sponsor if I could get away with it after I went through something to tell him what I did in case he ever needed that information. Uh, I was unsponsorable. I was undirect. I was self-directed, self-centered, self-motivated, self-reliant. And yet I pray every day. But, there's, but I'm in charge. That's what a real agnostic is, is a guy who, who goes around meeting sharing like God's running the universe and then watch his feet as he leaves the meeting and he acts like he does. And I would go to my sponsor and I'd have these lists, mental lists of everybody that's out of line. And, and I'm a noticer. I, and I bet you there's other noticers in. Do you ever walk into your home group? Everything's fine. It's like a key turns in your head. You just start noticing things. He didn't turn his cell phone off. <laughs> oh, my God. He, he, he drank five cups of coffee. He didn't put any money in the basket. He's robbing Alcoholics Anonymous, for God's sakes. We should take him out back of the Alano Club and straighten him out.
And I, I, people at work that came in late and didn't get caught. Oh, the ones that aggravated me the most were the 13 steppers. Oh, God, they bothered me. They were getting more action than I was. <laughs> and I go to my sponsor, I tell him all this stuff. And he'd always say the same thing. He says, you've got to quit playing God. I'm not playing God. I'm reporting accurate information here. I'm, I'm not playing God. But the, the ego separates and divides. The soul yearns for connectivity. And it was as if I'd climbed up onto a throne of judgment, smugly superior, looking down on my fellows. And the purpose of, of Alcoholics Anonymous in those 12 steps is to restore me to a, a sense of community. One of the great promises for a lonely guy like me who doesn't fit anywhere is that God will show us how to create the fellowship we crave. I craved it so desperately I couldn't even admit to myself how lonely I was and how I just wanted to be connected. I just wanted to be one with. I just wanted to get back to the early days of my drinking when I was about half lit up with my buddies, man, and we were just we were so plugged into each other. I remember drinking with my buddies one time, smoking reefer and just saying things to each other like, hey, man, I'll die for you. <laughs> my God, when you don't fit anywhere, that's spectacular. And then it turns on you and I can't get that back. And Alcoholics Anonymous is designed to reduce the separation between me and you, between me and God. And it actually, in a, in a weird, peculiar sense, between me and me. I'm the guy who talks about in, into action who's lived the double life, the triple life sometimes. Where I have a stage character I present and then the secret, pathetic knowledge of who I really am in the shadows. And Alcoholics Anonymous is designed to unify me with myself, which is really what integrity is. It's to be one person. I have no compartmentalization in my life. I am the same person with my daughter as I am with the people I, I sponsor, as I am with the old-timers, I am with the people in traffic, as I am with the people in the grocery store. I am not perfect in any of those venues. But I am the same guy. You see, I've always had too much of me, not only between me and you, and between me and God, but between me and me. I'll tell you a quick little story and I'll end it. Uh, when I was uh, brand new, they, I, I fell into the hands of people that were very, very big on 12-step work and service in Alcoholics Anonymous. And there was, they, and it was across the board. If you, there were people in our group that, that owned casinos and made hundreds of millions of dollars a year. And there were people living in halfway houses. And everybody was expected to help other drunks. Nobody was superior. Nobody, it was all across the board. This is our primary purpose. That means it's, it's the number one purpose. And they pushed me into this and pushed me into They wanted me. They, there was a, a new meeting that just started at the state penitentiary. And, and back in those days, you didn't have to have re sobriety requirements or nothing. To, you could just go and sign up. They wanted me to sign up. 
They wanted me to start taking meetings back into the detox that I just got out of. They wanted me to go on 12-step calls. They wanted me to look for newcomers. They wanted me to step up and be willing to sponsor people if asked. My God, I'm not even, I'm, I'm, I'm a mess. I said to this one guy, I said, you know, I understand what you're saying, but, but for God's sakes, don't you think I, I should work on me for a while? He says, work on you? You've done quite enough of that. Stop it. Stop it. And it, my God, I had done quite enough. I mean, I'd spent years. I mean, if, let me tell you something. Nobody's ever obsessively tried to make themselves better as I have. I mean, if I, if I could have fixed myself, I'd have been fixed. And I realized, okay. They said, go help somebody. And I started doing it. And it doesn't make any sense to me. I used to have weird thoughts when I first started doing it. Like, what? what is this like? Uh, A's got a membership problem or something. They got to send guys like me. I mean, what's, what's this all about? It doesn't make sense to me. When I was about, uh, I didn't work the steps out of the big book until I was four years sober. And I want you to know that I suffered from alcoholism in those four years. But I had islands of relief because I was so in service. I went to 15 meetings a week. I, I was taking two meetings into, into institutions every week. I had my had a $100 car full of newcomers. Uh, I mean, I had every service position in Alcoholics Anonymous all, all the way up to area officer. I was on two convention committees, almost as if I could outrun my alcoholism. But Chuck Chamberlain used to say, if you be alcoholic, there comes a time when you can no longer put anything between you and you. And there you are. And by the time I was four years sober, I couldn't outrun the depression anymore. There wasn't enough 12-step work. And I finally, as a result of spending a lot of time with Joe and Charlie and actually sponsoring guys through the steps in the book, and I hadn't taken them out of the book yet. I went to work in a process that has changed my life, and I've never been the same since. But in the first four years of sobriety, I survived myself by service and 12-step work. I remember coming home. I was probably a year and a half sober. I, about a month before, uh, maybe two months before, I would ended my first sober relationship, which is one of the most, uh, the, the fact that I stayed sober through the ending of that was amazing to me. And I'm kind of over it a little bit. And I'm, I'm, I got a job and the job, I'm hopeful in the area. I'm hopeful in that area. I'm hopeful now in employment. I got this job. I've been telling everybody in A what a great job it is. And, and I come home. I've been to two meetings that day. I had talked to my sponsor and I prayed. And I come home and I'm sitting on the sofa and I just, occasionally have this compelling need to check my future. I don't know if you've ever checked your future and it looked joyous to you. I, 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 I have never had the experience of, of going inside of me and examining my emotions and pondering my life and came away joyous. Matter of fact, I, I remember on a, I remember one occasion coming into a meeting at night. I had a great day at work. Everything's good. And a guy is greeting at the door named Wade. And I knew Wade pretty well. And Wade greets me. He looks me right in the eyes, one of those deep, soul-searching looks. And he says, Bob, how are you doing? How are you really doing? 
I said, uh, fine, Wayne, I'm, things are good. I went and I sat down and I thought, what does he know? <laughs> My God, now that I think about it, I don't even really feel very good. I... Oh, and I started looking around the room and everybody looked like they were a lot happier than I was. I started, what, what happened is I went from reality into me. And so I come home from work this day and I start sitting on the sofa compelled, like obsessive, to ponder my life. And I start sinking into this deep depression. And, and I'll tell you, I'm a real alcoholic. I, I drink of my emotions obsessively. There's a, a, one of my favorite lines in the book. It says, we're extreme examples of self-will run riot. It doesn't say you're kind of Bob. It says, Bob, you're off the frickin' charts. And then it says, though, you usually don't think so, do you? No, you don't, do you? No. And we really are different. My daughter, I keep, if you can follow this train, I thought you're doing good. My daughter is uh, not an alcoholic. Last year, she broke up with a relationship that she had for a while, and it was very painful for her, very tough. And I, I sat with her, and she was, you know, I, I love my daughter very, very much. She's my heart. And I sat with her, and, I, and talk, we talked and everything. And, and about a week or ten days later, we're having dinner, and I, I said, she's telling me she feels, she looks happy, and she looks like she, she says, yeah, Dad, I'm going out on a date and things. I said, but Kate, what, what happened with the Oh, Dad, it's time to move on. And, oh, Kate, you couldn't possibly have gotten enough mileage out of that yet. I mean, for she, she thinks I'm funny, right? But she's not willing to drink of that as deeply as I'm willing to drink of it. Because she's not an extreme example of self-will run riot. But I am. And when I start getting into my feelings, I get into them obsessively. I stare at them until they're just right here. And I am, I'm starting to get sick inside, and I'm getting scared because I'm, I'm, I'm afraid. I've drank in this spot before. I understand when Bill Wilson talks about running to Towns Hospital because he was so plagued by this, he was afraid he was going to drink. And I don't know what to do. And I, 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 I'm so depressed that I, I literally can't get off the sofa. I feel like I weigh 1,000 pounds. It's physically debilitating to me. And I'm sitting there and I just feel horrible. And I, I say this little prayer, you know, God, just the real simple, God help me. And I look at the clock and it's about 10 at 10 at night. And there's a late night meeting, 10, 15, up on the strip at a chapel called Duffy's, called the Between the Shows group. And I thought maybe if I could somehow get there, something would snap me out of this. And somehow it must have been a combination of God's grace and, and and, and a lot of willpower on my part. I muscled my way out of that sofa and I shuffled off to my car like a mope. And I'm, see, when I'm depressed, I walk depressed. I mean, I breathe depressed. I am, it's, it consumes me. And I get, I get my car and I drive up to that meeting and I, I sit in the back of the room, but I can't hear nothing. I mean, God could be trying to talk to me through the people in the room, but when I'm obsessively self-involved, what happens? is I reverse my relationship with reality. When I'm in fit spiritual condition, what goes on in me is, is all this stuff in here is like music in the doctor's office. Most of the time it's just chatter I don't even listen to. 
But when I get self-obsessed, I reverse it. And now what's being shared in the meeting is like music in the doctor's office because the big show's on the inside. And I can't hear nothing in that meeting, and I'm just getting worse. Matter of fact, is the more I look around the meeting, the worse I feel because I'm comparing my insides to your outsides, and this is not working out well. There's a guy sitting across from me. He's coming off a drunk, and he's in bad shape. He's, he was sitting there like I used to sit there coming off drunks, grabbing himself and rocking back and forth like you want to jump out of your skin. I know that feeling. And he sits there, and you can't sit still very long, and he finally gets up and he paces back and forth behind me like a caged animal. And then periodically he goes in the bathroom. You can hear him in there dry heaving. And, you know, I have a lot of problems in my life, and I'm trying to figure them out, and this guy's annoying the crap out of me. <laughs> By the end of the meeting, I've heard nothing. I'm not any better. I'm actually a little worse. I stay after the meeting to help Charlie, the secretary with the chairs and the trash for the chapel. And Charlie and I are the last two guys leaving. And we're standing in front. Charlie's locking up. He's got to go to work. He works at a graveyard shift at one of the casinos. And we look over. The guy in the meeting comes examining my emotions and pondering my life and came away joyous. Matter of fact, I, I remember on a, I remember one occasion coming into a meeting at night. I had a great day at work. Everything's good. And a guy is greeting at the door named Wade. And I knew Wade pretty well. And Wade greets me. He looks me right in the eyes, one of those deep, soul-searching looks. And he says, Bob, how are you doing? How are you really doing? I said, uh, fine, Wade. I'm, things are good. I went and I sat down. I thought, what does he know? <laughs> My God, now that I think about it, I don't even really feel very good. I... Oh, and I started looking around the room, and everybody looked like they were a lot happier than I was. I started... And what, what happened is I went from reality into me. And so I come home from work this day, and I start sitting on the sofa, compelled, like obsessive, to ponder my life. And I start sinking into this deep depression. And, and I'll tell you, I'm a real alcoholic. I, I drink of my emotions obsessively. There's a, I, one of my favorite lines in the book. It says, we're extreme examples of self-will run riot. It doesn't say you're kind of Bob. It says, Bob, you're off the frickin' charts. And then it says, though, you usually don't think so, do you? No, you don't, do you? No. And we really are different. My daughter, I keep, she can follow this train and thought you're doing good. My daughter is uh, not an alcoholic. Last year she broke up with a relationship that she had for a while, and it was very painful for her, very tough. And I, I sat with her, and she was, you know, I, I love my daughter very, very much. She's my heart. And I sat with her, and I... And talk, we talked and everything. And about a week or ten days later, we're having dinner. And I, I said, she's telling me she feels she looks happy. And she looks like she, she says, yeah, Dad, I'm going out on a date and things. I said, but Kate, what, what happened? with the really? Oh, Dad, it's time to move on. And, oh, Kate, you couldn't possibly have gotten enough mileage out of that yet. I mean, for <laughs> she, she thinks I'm funny, right? But she's not willing to drink of that as deeply as I'm willing to drink of it. Because she's not an extreme example of self-will run riot that I am. 
And when I start getting into my feelings, I get into them obsessively. I stare at them until they're just right here. And I am, I'm starting to get sick inside, and I'm getting scared because I'm, I'm, I'm afraid. I've drank in this spot before. I understand when Bill Wilson talks about running to Towns Hospital because he was so plagued by this, he was afraid he was going to drink. And I don't know what to do. And I, 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 I'm so depressed that I, I literally can't get off the sofa. I feel like I weigh a thousand pounds. It's physically debilitating to me. And I'm sitting there, and I just feel horrible. And I, I say this little prayer, you know, God, just the real simple, God, help me. And I look at the clock, and it's about 10 to 10 at night, and there's a late-night meeting, 10, 15, up on the strip at a chapel called Duffy's, called the Between the Shows group. And I thought, maybe if I could somehow get there, something would snap me out of this. And somehow, it must have been a combination of God's grace and and. And, and a lot of willpower on my part. I muscled my way out of that sofa and I shuffled off to my car like a mope. And I, see, when I'm depressed, I walk depressed. I mean, I breathe depressed. I am, it's, it consumes me. And I get, I get my car and I drive up to that meeting and I, I sit in the back of the room, but I can't hear nothing. I mean, God could be trying to talk to me through the people in the room, but when I'm obsessively self-involved, what happens? is I reverse my relationship with reality. When I'm in fit spiritual condition, what goes on in me is, is all this stuff in here is like music in the doctor's office. Most of the time it's just chatter I don't even listen to. But when I get self-obsessed, I reverse it. And now what's being shared in the meeting is like music in the doctor's office because the big show's on the inside. And I can't hear nothing in that meeting, and I'm just getting worse. Matter of fact, is the more I look around the meeting, the worse I feel because I'm comparing my insides to your outsides, and this is not working out well. There's a guy sitting across from me. He's coming off a drunk, and he's in bad shape. He was sitting there like I used to sit there coming off drunks, grabbing himself and rocking back and forth like you want to jump out of your skin. I know that feeling. And he sits there, and he can't sit still very long, and he gets up, and he paces back and forth behind me like a caged animal. And then periodically he goes in the bathroom, and you can hear him in there dry heaving. And, you know, I have a lot of problems in my life, and I'm trying to figure them out, and this guy's annoying the crap out of me. <laughs> By the end of the meeting, I've heard nothing. I'm not any better. I'm actually a little worse. I stay after the meeting to help Charlie, the secretary with the chairs and the trash for the chapel. And Charlie and I are the last two guys leaving. And we're standing in front. Charlie's locking up. He's got to go to work. He works at a graveyard shift at one of the casinos. And we look over. The guy in the meeting coming off the drunk is laying on the ground in front of my car in a fetal position. Now, I will have to step over him to go home and ponder my life more deeply which I am inclined to do, except Charlie's there, and Charlie knows my sponsor, and Charlie has a big mouth, and Charlie's saying to me, are you going to help this guy? And I'm looking, and I don't want to help this guy. I want to go home and think. Oh, man, I go over. The guy's a mess. He's peed his pants. He stinks. He has no medical insurance. Imagine the inconsideration. There's, at that time, Westcare hadn't opened in Las Vegas. There was no free detox. There was, if you didn't have insurance to go to the comp care, you were out of luck. There was one thing you could do with guys, and you could take him up to, to um, 
university, what used to be called Southern Nevada Memorial Hospital University Medical Center, and they would take a certain amount of indigent patients. And I'd been up there on 12-step calls, and they treat you like you have leprosy or something. They had a bad attitude about alcoholics. They had this, they, they had this attitude like well, we'd rather treat legitimately sick people rather than these self-induced guys that are going to probably be back here next month anyway. And I know I've been up there. Now, they don't say that, but you can, you'll watch them take people that come after you. And I know I'm going to be up there for four or five hours with this new guy, and i got to go to work in the morning. I got him in my car, and I'm driving up there, and I am not happy. And I'm thinking, my God, I'm going to, be, I'm going to go to work. I'm going to be tired. I'm not going to get any sleep. I'm going to have a bad attitude. I'll probably get in a fight with my boss and lose my job. That's a lousy job anyway. How come I? Isn't it enough that I got all these problems? I have to do this? Doesn't anybody else step up in AA except me, for God's sakes? <laughs> the big key word is me. I don't say none of it. I'm just driving to get there. We sign up. We're sitting in the waiting room, and this guy starts opening up to me. He's coming apart at the seams. And he starts to tell me about the shame and the remorse that he feels for the things he did to the people who loved him. He told me he couldn't even drink it away really anymore. He said that for some time he'd been trying to get up enough courage to kill himself. And he loathed the fact that he was a coward. And then he really got me. He said to me, he says, I don't know why you're wasting time with me. I'm not like you people. I always drink again. And he was telling me about me. And somewhere in the wee hours of the morning, I fell in love with that guy. I, I remember sitting there, and I, it was like my heart wanted him to be okay. I wanted him to be okay more than I wanted me to be okay. He was very important to me. And I don't know why. It doesn't make any sense. He can't get me a better job. He's probably not even going to say stay sober a year and give me some kind of credit for something. I mean, this guy can't do nothing for me except that he suffered from alcoholism almost identical to me. And it was years later that I realized that what had happened is that I fell in love with the me that was in him, an aspect of, of me that I could not repair or love directly, I had to do it through others. And I have changed my relationship with Bob from helping guys like Bob, and I've changed my feelings and relationship with Bob by clearing away the wreckage and paying all the money back and facing all the people I was afraid to face until I, until I no longer felt the same way about me. The wee hours of the morning, they checked him in, they gave him a bed, and I remember driving home, and I'm, the sun's starting to come up, and I'm driving home, and I'm crying. And I'm not crying because I'm depressed. I'm crying because I don't know that I've ever felt more complete in my whole life. I don't know that I've ever felt more right about me, more right about my life. I felt, a con for the first time, a conscious presence of some sort of power. It was in that car. It was in me. And I remember the feeling driving home and I'm thinking to myself, I want to feel this way the rest of my life. And it was reminiscent of the first time I ever got high and how amazing it was and thinking to myself, 
I want to feel this way the rest of my life. And that became my primary purpose. And then I had to go and do the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous to fit me, to fit me to be of maximum service to God and the people around me. I had to clear me out of the way so something could work through me because I was still real, I was still very full of myself and very blocked from God. And when I did that first four step, it's odd, I did two, I did actually four four steps, two in treatment and then two in my early sobriety, but I never did the one out of the book. And all those other four steps, after the fifth step was done, if you'd asked me what the exact nature of my wrongs was, I told you about the money I stole and the sleazy sex things I did and the lies I told and all that stuff. After I did the one in the book, if you'd asked me, you know what I would have said? I would have told you about how wrong I was about my mother and father. I'd have told you about how wrong I was about my sister and about the people that tried to love me and that I, I hated so much. And I'd, I'd have told you how wrong I was about the police and the bosses. Because it's designed to create a transformation, to look at these situations from an entirely different angle. And when you do that, it's like the, it's like the veil lifts. And all of a sudden, you know why you lost that job. Because you're looking at it through their eyes. You're going, oh yeah, I'd have fired him too. You know why him or her left you. Because you're looking at it through their eyes and their emotions and their responses and you're going... Yeah, I'd have left me too. And all of a sudden, life is not a mystery anymore. It's like the veil lifts. I, I sometimes think 90% of all spiritual awakenings is I just pull my head out of my butt and just get it. <laughs> just get it. And isn't it odd that I grow closer to God, not through acquisition of knowledge, but by self-reduction? I, I shrink Bob... And as I shrink Bob, I grow God. And through this practice of steps 10 and 11 and 12 as a way of life, I keep a consistency in my life of, with God. And he is the power here. There is no, isn't it odd we look everywhere else? There's a lot of things that look like power. Money looks like power. I've had, I sponsor a couple doctors. And I had a dear, dear friend named Chuck who was one of, I think, possibly one of the best cardiologists on the West Coast. And at almost 13 years of sobriety, in the middle of an amazing life, with prestige and fame, in a big house, and a trophy wife, and a nice car, and a great practice. Twelve and a half years of abstinence without the steps in a program that was self-directed with good intentions, Chuck put a double-gauge shotgun to his head and pulled both barrels. And I wish that was the only case of that I could tell you about. Alcoholism is a deadly disease. And if you, you may be here and not have alcoholism like I have it. Maybe you just have acute alcoholism and the physical stabilization of your condition is the end of the problem. But if you've got chronic alcoholism as I have, the physical stabilization of the condition is but a beginning in a lifetime regimen. The constant adjustment and self-reduction so that I can be one with you and one with God. Thank you for listening.